Our reading from Leviticus this morning uh, is on page 108 of your church Bibles. And we're reading from Leviticus uh, 11, uh, verses 1 to 19, and then jumping across to verse 39 to 45. This is entitled, Clean and Unclean Food. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Say to the Israelites, of all the animals that live on land, these are the ones you may eat. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cud. There are some that only chew the cud or only have a divided hoof, but you must not eat them. The camel, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is ceremonially unclean for you. The hyrax, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. The rabbit, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. And the pig, though it has a divided hoof, does not chew the cud. It is unclean for you. You must not eat the meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean for you. Of all the creatures living in the water of the seas and the streams, you may eat any that have fins and scales. But all creatures in the seas or streams that do not have fins and scales, whether among all the swarming things or among all the other living creatures in the water, you are to regard as unclean. And since you are to regard them as unclean, you must not eat their meat. You must regard their carcasses as unclean. Anything living in the water that does not have fins and scales is to be regarded as unclean by you. These are the birds you are to regard as unclean and not eat because they are unclean. The eagle, the vulture, the black vulture, the red kite, any kind of black kite, any kind of raven, the horned owl, the screech owl, the gull, any kind of hawk, the little owl, the cormorant, the great owl, the white owl, the desert owl, the osprey, the stork, any kind of heron, the hoopy and the bat. Now we jump across to verse 39. If any animal that you are allowed to eat dies, anyone who touches its carcass will be unclean till evening. Anyone who eats some of its carcass must wash their clothes and they will be unclean till evening. Anyone who picks up the carcass must wash their clothes and they will be unclean till evening. Every creature that moves along the ground is to be regarded as unclean. It is not to be eaten. You are not to eat any creature that moves along the ground, whether it moves on its belly or walks on all fours or on many feet. It is unclean. Do not defile yourself by any of these creatures. Do not make yourself unclean by means of them or be made unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Do not make yourself unclean by any creature that makes that moves along the ground. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. We'll get underway. Heavenly Father, thank you. Uh, as we've already prayed for mums of many kinds, grandmothers, stepmothers, I uh, pray that today might be a day of great blessing and celebration. I uh, pray also for the um, many of us for whom uh, this day is filled with um, disappointment or sadness and do thank you that whatever our stage and station in life that you love us 
And one of the ways we know that you love us is that you speak to us through your scriptures. So speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You wouldn't have thought that um, a bird's nest would be edible, would you? But the Chinese use bird's nests, swift's nests, to make bird nest soup. It's known as the caviar of the east. Some of you might have tried it. Um, here's the thing. Swifts don't make their nests out of twigs. They make their nests out of, well, mainly out of their own saliva, which gives this soup its unique texture and appearance. A bowl of this soup costs anywhere from $30 to $100 American dollars. And you might be thinking, I'll just stick to minestrone. Thank you very much. I understand. You also wouldn't think that to eat tarantulas, uh, but in Cambodia, they're fried whole, like legs, fangs, the whole thing. They were first discovered to be edible during, uh, by starving Cambodians during the brutal regime of Pol Pot's Khmer Rouge. But they've gone from being survival food to actually a delicacy that tourists come far and wide to try out. And the good news is they're cheap, just a few cents, and tasty too, apparently, if plucked straight from the burrow and pan-fried with a bit of garlic and salt. I believe they're crispy on the outside, gooey on the inside, taste like chicken. <laughs> in uh, Sardinia, in southern Italy, there is a cheese called Casa Matsu, which is a basic pecorino cheese. It's riddled with insect larvae. It's otherwise known as maggot cheese. And fermentation occurs as the larvae digest the cheese fats, and the texture becomes very soft. And it needs to be eaten when the maggots are still alive, because if they're dead, it's considered to be toxic. <laughs> Come on. It's now been banned for health reasons, but you can still get it on the black market. Yes, you can. In the Philippines, they eat fertilized eggs cooked just before they're about to hatch. In Sweden, they eat fermented herrings, the cans of which frequently explode because of the ongoing fermenting process. Japan, they eat puffer fish. In Vietnam, they drink snake wine. We might look at all those delicacies and think they ought to be just off the menu. I mean, especially pufferfish, they contain a toxin 1,200 times stronger than cyanide. And tarantulas, because they're tarantulas. And uh, you might equally look at the food laws in Leviticus 11 and just wonder if it's pretty much the same. Very odd chapter. Very strange things that you could eat if you were desperate, and things that you just shouldn't eat. And I wouldn't blame you if that's how you made sense of that chapter. I've been reading Bible commentators all week and they're obsessed with talking about parasitic worms and intestinal tracts and the protein percentage of locusts, which is about 50% in case you were wondering. But I want to say this morning, the thing about the food laws in Leviticus 11 is not about the food. It's really not. Uh, those laws are to teach the people of God back then about being clean and unclean. And... On this day, if we can make sense of them, we will leave with a fuller understanding of holiness, what it is like to be outside his presence, and what it means to live within his holy presence. So it's worth looking at today. Um, if you've not been with us, we are well into our series on Leviticus, uh, which is the most baffling book from the Old Testament, but it has so far yielded some surprising discoveries as it answers this most important question. How can sinful people, mothers, not mothers, whatever your station in life, live in the presence of a holy God? 
And the first answer in the first week was via a system of sacrifices which would not only atone for or deal with your sins, but which symbolized a life that was acceptable to God, one that was wholeheartedly lived in devotion to Him, one in which your most significant emotions and deepest affections were given over to Him. Last week we saw that to live in the presence of a holy God required holy priests who could adequately represent people to God and also bear their guilt. And today, as we look at the food laws in Leviticus 11, we're going to see that it is not at all easy for sinful people to live in the presence of the Holy God. But really, friends, believe me when I say it's not about the food. And I'm going to uh, plan to attack today's um, material, chapter 11, by asking three highly technical questions. First question is what? As in, what the heck is going on? Second question is why, and the third question is so. So, first question, what? What the? Basically, what is going on in this chapter? It just seems so bizarre. And when it was read to us, you might have thought, I don't know what that's about. But in parts, it sounds like those early chapters of Genesis that we've been studying in our small groups. And if you thought that, you would have been right, because the book of Leviticus is full of those resonances with the early chapters of Genesis. And it's very important to understand that at the very center of the camp of the Israelites, that's the wandering, traveling people of God who were rescued from slavery in Egypt, out there in the desert, there was this thing called a tabernacle, otherwise known as the tent of meeting, a specially constructed place where God's presence would dwell right in the midst of his people. And as we've said every week, it was decorated like a garden. It was decorated like the Garden of Eden. It was a symbolic Garden of Eden. It even had this candlestick or menorah in the middle that resembled the Tree of Life. And so this book, Leviticus, is an invitation for humanity to once again live in the presence of God. You might be here this morning and you find yourself estranged from God. This book has got something to say to you. It is an invitation once again to humans to live in the presence of God with him like the first humans did in the original Garden of Eden. And one of the questions this chapter raises is whether the Israelites will be like their first parents, their first father Adam, their first fa uh, mother uh, Eve, who disobeyed God when it came to food and who were therefore kicked out of his presence. And so there are resonances with those early chapters of Genesis all over the place in this book, and there's plenty, plenty in this chapter. And it might have occurred to you that those same three environments uh, in Genesis chapter 1, the skies and the seas and the land, which were correspondingly filled with birds and fish and animals, are represented here. I'd love it if you could look in your own Bibles, verse 2, of all the animals that live on the land. Jump down to verse 9. I'd love you to do it for yourself, please. Verse 9, of all the creatures living in the water of the seas and the streams. Or verse 13, these are the birds you're not to eat. And so there's not only those three kind of main classes of creatures that are highly reminiscent of Genesis chapter 1. There are obviously the commands about not eating, which is highly reminiscent of Genesis chapter 2. Can you see that? And in fact, you'd have to say there's a real intensification of Genesis 2. You remember uh, way back in the beginning, the first humans had incredible freedom and there was just the one restriction. Um, you're not to eat from that single tree of temptation. But did you notice in Leviticus 11 there's 
many restrictions. And I wonder if you picked up the emotional intensity of it. In Genesis chapter 1, God created all the creatures and said, man, they are all good. In this chapter, he says that there are creatures which are not only not good, and you not only cannot eat them, but, but you can't even touch them. And in fact, in, in previous translations, it says these creatures are detestable. In other words, you, you're, you're supposed to have an emotional response. you to hate them in your heart. Wow, that's intense. Later on in verses 32 to 39, it will say that when one of the so-called unclean animals dies and falls on clean things, it's going to contaminate those clean things. It's going to contaminate food that's fine or cooking utensils or clothing or people who are otherwise fine and make them unclean. And you and I read this and we're thinking, seriously, he was having a bad day when he wrote this chapter because he seems to have gotten all dark and down uh, upon a whole range of critters that were previously very good. And uh, that makes you wonder why, doesn't it? Why? And that's the second question we're asking today. Why has God given these people, these people of old, very tightened restrictions about what they're allowed to eat? Because in Genesis, even after the fall, he seemed pretty relaxed about what they could eat. Why is he so strict here? Well, let, let me repeat, it's not really about the food. It's, uh, it's not really about avoiding intestinal diseases and parasitic worms. And it's, it's not really about boosting the protein content of the Israelite diet like it was some form of ancient Atkins diet. It's actually to teach people. And it's to teach the people back then about the holiness of God, about how easily and in fact unavoidably they became unclean and unable to remain in God's presence and really to ask the question of them whether they will repeat the mistake of their first parents, Adam and Eve, and reject God's commands and suffer being cast out of God's presence, albeit temporarily. And so in chapter 11, it's, it's not really about the food. Uh, those restricted animals are not inherently bad. The reason they're outlawed, outlawed is because the effect they would have on you if you were to eat them or even touch them, because they would make an Israelite unclean. It's not that the food is bad, but it was outlawed because it made an Israelite unclean. Now have a look in your Bibles, please. Verse 4, unclean for you. Verse 5, the hyrax, um, I think it's a badger, <laughs> unclean for you. Verse 6, the rabbit is unclean for you. Bunnies are bad. Verse 7, the pig is unclean for you, and bacon lovers of the world unite in a desperate cry. Why? Uh, verse 8, don't touch their meat, don't, uh, don't eat their meat, don't touch their carcasses, they are unclean for you. Anything living in the seas that does not have fins or scales, our beloved crustaceans, stab me in the heart, unclean. Literally detestable. You've got to hate these things. You can't eat them. You can't touch them. You've got to hate them. Vultures, kites, owls, bats, unclean to be detested. Weasels, rats, lizards, skinks, unclean and detestable. You've got to hate them. Wow. Wow. A few years ago, I turned 40. I know, hard to believe. And... Uh, I decided to do one of those Tough Mudder um, 
Challenges, you know, one of those uh, warrior-type uh, sporting challenges where you... It's not a picture of me, okay? Get over it. Not all bald-headed people are the same. We're individuals, far out. Uh, where you run kind of a half marathon and you um, negotiate a whole bunch of muddy obstacles. And I did it with my uh, team of 20-year-old youth leaders who clearly didn't take training seriously at all, like I did because, let's be honest, I was old and fat. So we had run for about two kilometres and they stopped and were going, oh, it's really hard. Um, we need to, to walk because they apparently thought you could Facebook your way towards fitness. Doesn't work that way. So typical of that generation. But the thing is, you've got to stay together as a team. And so it wasn't all that hard for me because we walked most of the way. Um, and so I just thought, look, every time we come to a muddy, muddy obstacle, I'm just going to see how muddy I can get and have a lot of fun. And I had a lot of fun. But uh, I was finding mud behind my ears and in my knees and up my nose and in my belly button, which is a dangerous place, for days afterwards. And the truth is that as much fun as it was to get dirty, nobody wants to stay dirty. And so once you finish the race, you go to the, the washdown area and it's sort of like a drive-through car wash for humans. Looks like this. And you get cleaned up. Because the truth is that nobody wants to remain unclean. And friends, that is painfully brought home in the book of Leviticus. Becoming and remaining unclean is a horrible reality because it means being outside the camp. And that means being outside the presence of God. And that's why the animals listed are unclean. It's not they make you sick, although I guess they might. It's not because they're not good to eat or they look bad. It's because the effect they would have on an Israelite who touched them or ate them, you would remain clean, unclean until evening. You see it in verse 24, 27, 28, 39, and 40. Unclean until evening. And the problem with being unclean is that it was potentially deadly. Because if you neared the presence of God in that tabernacle, that tent I was talking about earlier, and you were unclean, you just might be consumed by the consuming holiness of God. Just as the meat from the sacrifices we looked at two weeks ago was consumed by God. Just as the two rogue priests we looked at last week, Nadab and Abihu, were consumed by the fire of God. You might strike a similar fate if in your uncleanness you came in to contact with the consuming holiness of God. Very real danger. And so at the end of this whole block, in Leviticus chapter 15, verse 31, God instructs Moses, the leader of the Israelites, and Aaron, his brother, the high priest, with these words. You must, Moses and Aaron, you must keep the Israelites separate from things that make them unclean so they will not die in their uncleanness for defiling my dwelling place, that is the tabernacle, the tent thing, which is among them. You see, if you became unclean from contact with an unclean animal, what happened is you would remain unclean until evening and you would move outside the camp of God's people. That is, in God's grace, you would experience only temporarily, right, just for the rest of the day, what Adam and Eve experienced way back in Genesis 3, that is being cast out of the presence of God, you would get to feel what it was like to be removed from Him, but just overnight. Now, I want you to try and put yourself in the shoes of the average Israelite person and ask yourself what that would do to your heart 
Don't you think you would re-enter the camp the next day with a vivid impression of the holiness of God? Do you not think you might re-enter with a renewed commitment to follow him with all your heart? Don't you think you might resolve to be different from your forefather and foremother, Adam and Eve, who rejected the commands of God about eating and suffered a lasting expulsion from the presence of God? I think you would do all that. And look, there is provision to return into the camp, the presence of God, quickly via kind of washing. But I think that would just be enough to really leave a vivid impression that God is not mucking around here and that I need to take his holiness seriously. And uh, friends, I think that's why we need to study the book of Leviticus because we have a severely hampered, stunted, limited view of the holiness of God. And we need to be hastened and chastened by some of the stories in our Old Testament of sinful people who came into his presence because we're not shocked by the depravity in our culture. And let me say, we are way too tolerant of it in our own lives. And we have this silly, vague idea that God is just sort of interested in our hearts, so that if we're vaguely inclined to like him, that hopefully that ought to be enough for him. Well, of course he's interested in our hearts, our wholehearted devotion to him. But if we love him for who he is, with all that we are, we wouldn't just be deeply affronted by our surrounding culture, even as we seek to understand it and love it and serve it and work for its well-being, which is what I hope we are all doing, but we would be surgical with our own sin and selfishness in our own lives. But brothers and sisters, you and I are not. And so I hope that this gives us a vision for God in all his wonderful holiness because it's beautiful and it's pure and it is befitting of him just as it is good for us and it is befitting for us as his people. And that's why it's not really at all strange for verses 43 and 45 to connect eating you know, strange animals we've not heard of really with the holiness of God and our own personal holiness because the stuff about the weird animals is not about the food. It is about teaching the people about the holiness of God and moving in their hearts to mimic his holiness in their lives too. Read along in verse 43 and verse 45 with me in your Bibles in front of you. Do not defile yourselves by any of these creatures. Do not make yourselves unclean by means of them or be made unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Don't make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves along the ground. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. So friends, that's the why from the book of Leviticus. And there, there are various theories as to why God has chosen those particular animals uh, and all of those theories, are, I think, are a little bit speculative, and you can ask me about them later if you like. And if you're interested in the whole bit about mold and mildew in verses tw uh, chapters 12 to 15, you can ask me uh, about that as well. But the thing about the creatures, at least, is they're unclean, and the Israelites were to detest them in their hearts because of the effect. Eating them, touching them, rendered 
a human being unclean, a horrible, although temporary, reminder of what it was like when Adam and Eve were kicked out of Eden, a very clear indication of how easy and dangerous it was to be unclean in the presence of God, and a genuinely heart-moving educational device that impressed upon an Israelite the need to pursue holiness in every aspect of their lives, just as God was holy in all he is and all that he does. And uh, the last question we're going to look at today is so. We've learned the food laws were never really about the food, but were educational, slowly revealing both the ease with which a person would become unclean and the horrible reality of being cast outside the presence of God, even if temporarily. If the book of Leviticus asks the question, how can sinful people remain in the presence of the holy God? The answer today seems to be with some difficulty, but man, that was way back then. So long ago, we're going to possibly have to say to us here today. I've got four things that I think this means today. First thing, which will allay your immediate fears and which will give you no conscience issues, whatever is set down at the table of your Mother's Day lunch. Jesus has declared all things, all food, to be clean. Bacon lovers of the world unite in a single cry of joy. Mark chapter 7, <laughs> I heard a, a whimper of joy over here. We're all with you in our heart, okay, but we're, we're just Anglicans, a bit reserved. All right. Mark 7, Jesus says, Don't you see? Nothing that enters a person from the outside can make them unclean. It doesn't go into the heart. It goes into the stomach and then out of the body. What, a per, uh, what comes out of a person is what makes them unclean. And if you think about that, Jesus is really just saying, guys, I mean, it's his way of saying the food laws are never really about the food. They were always meant to be educational. And Mark, in his gospel, helpfully includes a little clarifying sentence in verse 19. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Just so we can be sure that our beloved crustaceans are back on the menu and we can enjoy them with impunity. If you want to eat a gecko, go for it. I'm not going to stop you, at least not on religious grounds. If you want to eat a hoopoe, go for that. And tell me what exactly it was that you were eating, because I've got no idea. All foods are clean. Secondly, and uh, this will allay what really ought to be our deeper and more abiding fear. Jesus has cleansed us definitively should we trust in his person and in his work of living and dying and rising again for us. I wonder if you Christians know that we can be assured that we are acceptable and remain in the presence of God and in his favor because Jesus has cleansed us. In John chapter 15, Jesus says to his disciples, You are already clean because of Jesus' words in their souls, he says to them. In other words, because they trusted in his promises. Already clean. And when we see Jesus heal a leper or uh, heal that woman with bleeding, 
both of which would have rendered them unclean by strict application of Leviticus, were not meant to think, that is so cool, because they're going to have a much better life now, though they would. And we're not even meant to think, wow, that is awesome. Now they can enter the temple precinct, be with their people from which they were previously excluded, though that would happen. We are meant to see in them what Jesus does definitively and spiritually for everyone who puts their trust in him. He cleanses us spiritually, definitively, so that we can remain with great assurance in the presence and favour of God. Friends, if you don't know that today, that is something worth knowing and worthy of further investigation. And then Jesus gives to all who trust in him his spirit, the one who lives within us. So we are permanently in the presence of God. Wonderful. Thirdly, and uh, perhaps this is the main thing that the whole book of Leviticus teaches, and that is that God is holy. He remains holy. I mean, it says it there twice, doesn't it, in verse 44 and verse 35. I, the Lord your God, am holy. And, and of course, that doesn't change. So the fact that we have more liberties now that it comes to food, you know, we enjoy prawns and bacon, and even that Jesus permanently, definitively cleanses us by his cleansing death on the cross for our sins, that ought not to dilute our view of God's holiness. If anything, it should intensify it. Because we have seen the extreme measures it took Jesus to satisfy that holiness, both in his personal obedience when he lived and in his sacrificial death for our sins. I will say what I said last week. God is no plaything we humans have invented to mess about with. Ain't no domesticated kitten. His character does not change. His holiness remains as fierce as it is beautiful and it is very fierce and it is exceedingly beautiful. And so lastly, for all the Christians here today, His holiness remains something for us to imitate in our lives. Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy, says Leviticus chapter 11. The Apostle Peter quotes that very same verse in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Some of us look at our mums and go, I want to be just like her. Some of us look at our mums and think, I want to be the exact opposite. Whatever camp you are in, this chapter says, look at God and be like him. It's the same requirement from us because it's the same beautiful quality in the same extraordinary and awesome God that we're talking about. The difference now is that we have God's Holy Spirit at work within our spirits. I take it the Holy Spirit is called the Holy Spirit not just because He is holy in Himself, but because He produces holiness in His people. And we've got the Holy Spirit at work in our spirits, and He moves our hearts to want to mimic God's holiness, and He empowers our wills and our bodies so that we can obey Him. And if you are looking of, for some specific ways of what it might look like 
to mimic God's holiness, why don't we go back to Mark chapter 7, where Jesus talks about the things that comes out of a person's body, out of their heart. Have a look in verse 21. Same conversation Jesus is having, and he says, it's from within. It is, isn't it? It's from out of a person's heart that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly or foolishness all of these things come from inside and make a person unclean so i'm not talking to you if you're not a christian here but if you are a christian here and you're trying to work out what does it mean to mimic god's holiness in my life well there's plenty of food for thought right there isn't there well as we finish bird's nest soup Deep fried tarantula, maggot cheese, weasels, owls. Lots of owls. Did you notice that? Lizards, bats. None of them sound very appetizing, whether they're modern delicacies or prohibited food items from Leviticus chapter 11. But of course, it was never about the food. It was to teach the Israelites that their God was holy, that to become unclean was not that difficult to do, but to be cast out of his presence, man, that was a dreadful reality to be avoided. And I know the food laws don't apply to us in the same way today, but they do impress upon our spirits the same thing, don't they? And Jesus has declared all foods clean. And wonderful news of the gospel is that he has cleansed permanently everyone who trusts in his life and his death and his resurrection. But of course, that does just intensify our understanding that God is holy and his requirement of his people to reflect that holiness. Let me finish with that verse again. Be holy, he says, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Let's praise him for that and ask him for his help in doing just that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we do praise you for your holiness. It's as fierce as it is beautiful, and it is fierce and beautiful. We praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who perfectly satisfied your holiness and then who permanently, definitively cleansed us from our uncleanness and then gave us your spirit who lives within us so that we are forever acceptable in your presence and always within your grace. And far from that relaxing our understanding of holiness, we see it intensified and we ask for your great help in mimicking your holiness that we might bring due honour and glory to the name of Jesus in whose name we pray these things. Amen.